Thanks for tuning in this week to Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church plant located in the Pasadena area. It is our mission to save the lost, to equip the saved, to serve both the lost and the saved, and finally to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting from the beginning of a book and working our way through all the way till the end. It is our prayer that you would grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ through his word. Well, we've been studying through the Gospel of Luke for almost a year now, and we started with Jesus' miraculous birth in a manger, and then we looked at his ministry, we looked at his miracles, we looked at his message, but really all of that was leading to something far greater. All of this was leading to the ultimate reason Jesus came to this earth and became one of us as he came and was born in Bethlehem, and he lived that sinless life, and he did that ministry. All of it was leading to one particular point in time, and that was him paying for our sins on the cross. This morning we're going to be studying this latter part of Luke chapter 23, where we deal with this very important truth of Jesus's crucifixion. Now, I know for many of you, the crucifixion of Jesus is a familiar topic. It's something that you've heard before. It's something that you remember a lot. And and my desire this morning is that as we look at what Jesus went through emotionally, as we look at what Jesus went through physically, as we look at what Jesus went through spiritually, I hope that there's a greater depth of understanding of what he was willing to sacrifice for you. And one of the main things I want to make sure we don't miss this morning is what that sacrifice that Jesus did for you and me demonstrates to us. It demonstrates in the most powerful way his great love for us. You know, when I was in Alabama getting ready to propose to Jenny, I wanted to express in words how much I loved her, how much she meant to me, Uh, and I like to play music and write songs, and so I wrote a song uh, about how much I loved her, and and I performed that song to her before I I asked her to marry me, and you know, I, I wanted to do that because I wanted to express in words that I loved her. And, you know, most of our engagement, I was over in Scotland while she was in Alabama. And so, you know, we would talk on the phone, but we would also write to each other, write, you know, basically love letters expressing, you know, how much we mean to each other. And it was great to to read about how much Jenny loved me. But now that I've been married for 11 years, I've discovered that how Jenny acts towards me demonstrates her love towards me far more than any words that she expresses. You see, Jenny's words of love are only meaningful if her actions demonstrate that love as well. And the same is true with me. My words of love are only meaningful to her if my actions demonstrate that love. For example, if I say, Jenny, I love you, and then smack, get into the kitchen and do some dishes, you know, would that words of love demonstrate it to her? No, because my actions would completely contradict, I love you. I would show with my actions that no, that wasn't true. Now, if I said, Jenny, dear, I love you, and I handed her some flowers, and I sat next to her and talked with her and and gave her some quality time, my actions would be demonstrating love, not contradicting my words. Now, I have no doubt that Jenny loves me, and the main reason isn't because she tells me all the time what she does, but because she demonstrates it. She shows me. Now, the reason I bring this up before we start this passage on the crucifixion is because I think we need to recognize something very important. It's not just words that demonstrate love. Actually, what demonstrates love far more is action. And I'm so grateful that God didn't just shout from heaven, I love you. He didn't just write us a love letter. He demonstrated his love in the most powerful way so that we could be confident of the truth that God loves us. 
Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says, But God demonstrates his own love towards us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God demonstrated his love in such a powerful way by giving his life for us on the cross. God's actions prove his love for his his love for us. His actions prove the depth of his love. You know, Jesus said what action there is that proves the, the greatest amount of love. He says, you know what, you want to demonstrate love? Here's what you can do. John 15, verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. According to Jesus, the action that demonstrates the greatest amount of love is not words. It's not even, you know, flowers or other things. The greatest demonstration of love is to sacrifice your life for someone else's. And that's exactly what he did for us. So the main thing I want you to take from this teaching this morning is a confidence that God deeply loves you. And he demonstrated that by dying on the cross for your sins. Now, I know this is a point that many of us are familiar with, but oftentimes in the midst of difficulty, we don't believe it. Oftentimes in the midst of struggles, we don't accept it. You know, I know there have been those times in my life where I doubted God's love for me. One of those times was when my grandmother, who I I loved deeply, died. And and I asked that question, you know, God, if you truly loved me, why would you allow this? How could you allow this to happen? Now, I'm confident many of you here this morning have asked questions like this to God. God, if if you really love me, why did you allow this person to die? God, if you really loved me, why would you allow this horrible sickness in my life? God, if you really loved me, why would you allow this situation to happen? God, if you really love me, you can fill in the blank. Now, as I was doubting God's love for me because of my grandmother's death, he spoke to me. And he actually did it through a pastor teaching on this passage that we're going to be looking at this morning, the crucifixion of Jesus and all that Jesus went through. And as I doubted the love of God, he reminded me of all that he did to clearly show how much he truly does love me. You know, oftentimes we pray. I know I have done this in my life, and perhaps you have as well. You pray prayers like this. Lord, if if you answer this particular request in the way that I want it, that will prove to me that you love me. Lord, if you get me out of this difficult situation, that will prove to me that you love me. If you heal this sickness, that will prove to me that you love me. But something we need to understand is that God has already done the greatest thing he could ever do to prove to us that he loves us. You know, if if the cross isn't enough proof, there isn't a greater proof than that. If his death isn't enough proof, there isn't a greater proof than that. We don't need Jesus to prove to us he loves us by answering our prayers. Whether he answers them the way we want to or not does not negate the reality that we already have, that he has shown in the most powerful way his love for us, and we can be confident of that. So as we examine all that Jesus suffered for us this morning, I challenge you to really be thinking about the depth of what he's gone through so that you can see what he was willing to go through and suffer because of his love for you. Well, last week we we looked at the illegal trial that Jesus went through, the trial that was full of corruption and compromise and complexity. And at the end of that trial, we see Pilate condemning Jesus to death. And that is where we're going to pick up in Luke's gospel this morning, starting in verse 26 of chapter 23. It says this, Now as they led Jesus away, they laid hold of a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, who was coming from the country, and on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. 
Now, as I mentioned before, the different gospel accounts give different snapshots into different things, and some of them include certain things that others don't. And so Luke goes straight from being uh, Jesus being condemned to all of a sudden Jesus carrying the cross. And he, he doesn't share with us two very important events that transpire before that. And so I want to look at the other gospels that tell us those two events that happened right before Jesus had to carry the cross. If you remember back in verse 16, Pontius Pilate said, I'm going to have have Jesus scourged, and then I'm going to release him. Well, after the crowd said, no, 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 we want him crucified, he decides, all right, well, I'm going to crucify him, but he still has Jesus scourged. In Matthew 26, or actually 27, verse 26, it says, then Pilate released Barabbas to them, and when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. So before Jesus was delivered up to be crucified, before he went through all that torture, all that pain, there were things that he went through prior to that that would have made that pain and that suffering all the more difficult. If you remember, it started really in the Garden of Gethsemane. When he's praying and it's so intense and there's such great stress that he's sweating drops of blood. And in that moment, notice what else happens that would have been emotionally distracting and emotionally distressing to him All his disciples leave him. Judas betrays him. Peter denies him. All that's transpiring in that night. And then he's taken to that illegal night trial that we looked at before and given those false accusations to him. All of those things, emotional things that would have drained him. And then at that night trial, remember, they blindfolded him. And they started punching him in the face and say, prophesy, who will strike you next? And then they hit him again. Prophesy, who will strike you next? All those things leading up to what we're going to see next. The scourging that he had to go through. Now, last week I mentioned a little bit about this custom of scourging. It was a brutal whipping that the Romans did. The victim of a Roman scourging was chained against a post and it was struck with a whip. And it wasn't just a normal whip. It was a whip that woven in it had glass and had metal. It had rock. The purpose of this, when you normally just have a leather whip, it hits the skin, bounce off. Obviously, it is painful. But the purpose of this was when it hit the skin, it would grab the skin and it would pull chunks of the skin off of it with it. And so when someone had this brutal beating and whipped over and over and over again, all the skin on their back would have been ripped off the the, the, the muscle, the tissue uh, would have been exposed, ligaments, it would have been a horrible thing, and there would have been a huge deal of blood loss. Actually, it's recorded that many people died just from this alone. Because of the amount of blood loss that they suffered through this horrible scourging, it killed them. So the first event after Jesus was condemned to death that Luke doesn't record is this scourging. But there's also another thing that happens to Jesus, another horrible event that transpires before they crucify him. And Matthew's gospel reveals the next traumatic thing that Jesus went through after he was scourged. Matthew chapter 27, starting in verse 27, notice what we're told. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole garrison around him. And they stripped him. And put a scarlet robe on him. And when they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. And they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! Then they spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they took the robe off him and put his own clothes on him and led him away to be crucified. Jesus had already gone through a lot, and now the soldiers see it's their time to mock Jesus. 
They put this robe on him as a a kingly robe. They put a reed into his hand like it's a kingly staff. And they make a crown for him. But the crown that they make is not a nice golden crown. It is a crown made of thorns. Here's a picture of what that crown probably would have looked like. Imagine having that jammed into your head. Imagine that placed upon your skull. I'm sure many of you have pricked your fingers on a rose thorn or some kind of thorn. And, you know, it's painful. Imagine having that thorn in your head and how painful that would be. But notice these soldiers that they do this to mock Jesus. Oh, you're the king of the Jews. Well, let's make you dress you up like a king and let's bow our knees and say, Hail, king of the Jews in mockery. And then they spit on him. And they take the reed that they put into his hand, that that make-believe staff for a king, and they strike him in the head with that reed. And notice notice what that would do. You've got these thorns on your head, and every time you strike it, those thorns would be pushed farther and farther into your skull, and the pain would be immense. So here we see Jesus going through more emotional pain as he's spit upon, as he's mocked, and physical pain as this crown of thorns is beaten into his head. But also notice this. They put this clothes on him, and then they rip it off when they're done. Jesus was just brutally scourged. His, his back would have been open with all these bleeding wounds. And when you put a, a cloth over that and then rip it back off, the pain that would just come from that alone would have been horrible. So before Jesus is led away to be crucified, we see he's gone through many emotional things, many physical things that would have greatly weakened him. He has gone through the enormous stress Betrayal, abandonment, denial, mockery, scourging, and now this crown of thorns placed on his head. Now after all those things happened, Luke tells us he was led away to be crucified. And as the Roman custom was, if you're led away to be crucified, you had to carry the crossbeam of your own cross. It wasn't usually the full cross, it was the the beam itself, which usually weighed about a hundred pounds. And so the victim would carry that crossbeam First, they were usually stripped of their clothes, their arms were tied to the crossbeam, and they were forced to walk to their place of execution. Now, carrying a wooden crossbar that weighed about 100 pounds, you know, would be difficult for someone who was fully healthy, for someone who didn't just go through great torture. But obviously, after all that Jesus has gone through, and remember, he also didn't get any sleep the night before, all these physical things that have gone through, he now is starting to carry this crossbeam, and he collapsed. His body can't handle the weight. And so the Roman soldiers grab a man by the name of Simon from the region of Cyrene, and they tell him to carry the cross for Jesus. So Jesus is now being led to the place where they're going to crucify him. And let's see what happens next. And a great multitude of the people followed him, and women who also mourned and lamented him. But Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. But weep for yourselves and for your children. For indeed the days are coming in which they will say, Blessed are the barren wombs that never bore, and breasts which never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and the hills cover us. For if they do these things in the green wood, what will be done in the dry? It was customary for a multitude to follow along when someone was being crucified, and it would be led by a Roman soldier who was holding the sign of what the guilty person was guilty of. It would have their name and their crime. Jesus, the king of the Jews, for his crime. We know this, there's two other guys and they're thieves. But whatever crime it was, that soldier would stand and he would walk before you and he would declare your name and he would declare your crime so that you would be deterred from doing that yourself. 
Well, while this is happening, we see this group of women that are there lamenting and mourning. And once again, we see a great demonstration of love from Jesus. Notice what he says. He says, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. Remember back in chapter 19, Jesus goes and he weeps over the city of Jerusalem. He weeps because they rejected him. He weeps because they did not receive him as their Messiah. And he knows of the destruction that's coming. He warns them of the destruction that's coming. And it saddens him, the fact that they've rejected him. The fact that you know, ultimately they're going to have to suffer because of it. And once again, we see this love and this warning of the destruction that is coming. Don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves. And he shares with them of the coming destruction. And he ends with an interesting saying. He says, For if they do these things in the green wood, what will be done in the dry? This was a proverbial phrase that they used in Jesus' day, which basically he was meaning, if they do these things to someone who is innocent, what are they going to do to someone who's guilty? They're crucifying me, the innocent one who hasn't done anything to deserve this. What are they going to do to you, the Romans, when they come? And we know in 70 AD they do come, and you are guilty of insurrection. What are they going to do to you? Well, we know what happens. They wipe out the whole city. They destroy the temple. They come and bring their fierce judgment upon Jerusalem. So Jesus is being led to the place of his crucifixion, and now Luke's going to reveal he wasn't the only one being crucified that day. Verse 32. There were also two other criminals led with him to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. So notice Jesus isn't the only one that the Romans are leading to crucifixion. Usually you would have a group of people that were being crucified and they go through you know, that whole suffering. There are two other men, we're told in Matthew's gospel, both of them are thieves. Now, the place of crucifixion where the Romans were leading Jesus, Luke tells us, was called Calvary. This term Calvary means the place of the skull. Interesting. It was given this name, actually. Here's a picture that I took while in uh, Israel. And if you look at this hill and you look towards the middle of it, you might see something that kind of jumps out at you. I'll zoom in a little bit for you. There's actually what looks like a skull. And because of that, it was named the place of the skull because they used to crucify people right there in this place where the mountain uh, backing looked like a skull. So Jesus and these other two men are led to Calvary, the place of the skull, and, and they arrive there to be crucified. Jesus in the middle, one man to his left, and one man to his right. Now, notice that, G, that Luke does not give us details about the crucifixion. He doesn't go into detail about what Jesus would have gone through, what they would have done to him, because there was no need. Luke's readers would have been very familiar with crucifixion because they would have seen people crucified all the time. This was something that the Romans did regularly, and so there was no need to go into detail about what transpires and what happens to someone. Right when they heard that term, crucifixion, their minds would be flooded with the times that they walked down the street and watched people go through these things. So Luke didn't need to expound upon that, but I want to a little bit this morning because we don't see that. We don't really know what goes on with someone being crucified. And I think understanding what Jesus went through hopefully will give us a greater depth of understanding of what he was willing to sacrifice for you and for me. You know, the Romans were extremely cruel and experts 
at the art of torture. And they designed crucifixion really for two main reasons. The first part of reason that uh, crucifixion was done was a public deterrent, a crime. Over the head of everyone crucified would be the sign with their name and their crime. Now imagine you thinking, I might steal, or I might murder, or I might do one of these things, and you're walking down the street and you see what happened to that guy who did that. You think twice about doing that in the Roman government because you realize, I don't want to be that person. I don't want to go through that. And so the first thing, they did this, and they did it publicly, but they wanted everyone to see to deter people from committing these crimes. But the second purpose of crucifixion was to inflict a great deal of pain for a very long time period of time. Most people who were crucified usually hung on the cross about three to six days before dying. Pilate was actually amazed at how quickly Jesus died because that wasn't the norm. The purpose of crucifixion was to keep you alive for a elongated period of time so that you would be tortured even more. Now crucifixion started as they threw the victim onto the cross And the next thing that they would do is they would take an iron nail and they would drive it through the bones in your wrist so that the weight of your body could be held up. Now you might be thinking to yourself, well, wait a second, all the pictures I see are are nails in people's hands. Well, actually, that's not the way that they did it because a nail in your hand wouldn't hold up the weight of your body. It would actually rip through your hand. But the bones that connect right here in the wrist, that would hold the weight. But there's also something else in those bones. There's a nice big fat nerve that's there. And every time the weight of your body rested on that nerve, it would cause excruciating pain to go through your arms and through your body. Remember, this was designed specifically to inflict a lot of pain. Well, once the arms were nailed to the cross, then they would move to the feet. They put one foot on top of the other and drove a nail before, uh, between the arch of each foot, leaving the knees slightly bent. The nail severed several nerves in the foot. And once again, as you put the weight of your body pressing upon that, the pain that, that would bring. After the victim was nailed to the cross, they would then lift and dropped the cross into a small hole to make the cross upright. And as that jolted the body, imagine that now the nails in your wrist and the nail through your feet and your whole body getting jolted down and the pain just that alone would cause. So as a victim pushed himself up to avoid the wrenching torments in his wrists, he would then have to place the full weight of his body through the nail in his feet. And either way, there was great, great pain. Now, if that's not bad enough, the only way to breathe on the cross is to lift your body. You're dangling down. You have to pull yourself up to take a breath. And every time you pull yourself up, you have to go through the pain of all that weight on your arms or all that weight on your feet. But you know what? Your body won't allow itself to die. And this is why they designed it this way. You'll keep taking breaths because it's just natural in you to survive. And even though it hurts really bad, you'll just breathe and you'll pull and you'll push. And that's why it took days for people to die. The way the people died in crucifixion wasn't from blood loss, wasn't from being beat, wasn't from being nailed. They died from suffocation. Ultimately, they couldn't hang there anymore. They couldn't lift anymore. They couldn't pull anymore. And they couldn't breathe. And they would suffocate. But it would take days before that would transpire. Now imagine as you're sitting there, any of you who have done any exercise or squats or things, and you start getting fatigued and your muscles start to cramp And the pain of just sitting there trying to hold the weight of your body in your legs and in your arms. And that itself would be so difficult. But finally your arms get to a point where they give out. They can't hold the weight anymore. And the common thing that happened was the shoulders were ripped out of their sockets. 
which again would have been excruciatingly painful. And ultimately you die of suffocation. Now because it was the Passover, the Jews didn't want Jesus and the other two men hanging on the cross through Passover. So they asked Pilate, can we break their legs? Because if the legs are broken, they can't push up anymore. They can't breathe and they'll just die. It was actually somewhat of merciful in that regard and so Pilate gave them permission to break the legs of these people so that they would die they could remove them from the cross before Passover happened but as they come to Jesus they realize he's already dead they didn't break his legs but one of the soldiers pierced his side we're told that blood and water poured out separately which actually reveals that he had a ruptured heart so as you can imagine crucifixion was one of the worst possible ways to die And that is what Jesus went through for us. And he did it because of his great love for us. You know, I think something so important to remember is that Jesus was in complete control. You know, we think of this and we think of all that he went through and we think surely no one would allow themselves to go through that. Surely he was forced to have this upon him. Surely the Romans, those horrible people, did all this and they they nailed him down and he couldn't get up and he couldn't stop them. Well, that's not the case at all. Jesus said in John chapter 10, Verse 18, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. This command I received from my father. Very important to understand Jesus wasn't forced to be crucified. No one on this earth had the power to force Jesus to give up his life if he didn't want to. He could have wiped everyone out. He could have destroyed everyone who was coming to try and kill him. At any point in time, Jesus could have stopped it. He could have stopped the whipping. He could have stopped the beatings. He could have stopped the crucifixion. And he could have ended it all if he desired to. He willingly chose to give up his life. It was not taken from him. And the reason he willingly gave up his life is because of his amazing love for each one of us. It was not nails that held Jesus to the cross. It was ultimately his love for you and me. So as Jesus is going through this horrible torture, Luke shares with us some other amazing aspects of Jesus' love. Notice what he says. He's hanging there on this cross in this immense pain. And Luke chapter 23, verse 34, we see something that Jesus says. He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. What an amazing prayer of love. I want you to imagine yourself being tortured. Imagine the difficulty that that would bring to your life and what you would feel towards those who are doing that to you what kind of prayer would you be praying lord strike them down lord bring fire from heaven and consume them lord do something horrible to them because of the horrible things they're doing to me but lord forgive them this is the heart of jesus a heart of forgiveness for those who have sinned against him and willing to say i will forgive you that's the heart that he desires for us to have when jesus taught he said love your enemies Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who uh, spitefully use you and persecute you. And now he shows in action that he practiced what he preached. Demonstrating a love for those who crucified him on the cross. And that's what he desires for us to do towards our enemies as well. Forgive them. So Jesus is hanging on the cross asking the Father to forgive these people. But notice what these people are saying. And I find such a, an ironic you know, contrast of forgive them and notice the mockery of the crowd 
towards Jesus in verses 34 through 39. And they divided his garments and cast lots, and the people stood looking on. But even the rulers with them sneered, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he's the Christ, the chosen of God. Then the soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine, saying, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. And an inscription was written over him in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you're the Christ, save yourself and us. So here we have several groups of people responding to this horrible treatment of Jesus. And notice first the soldiers are dividing Jesus' garments and they're casting it, uh, casting lots to see who will get them. I think it's interesting, in order to save us from our sins, Jesus gave up everything, even his clothes off his back. Gave it all up for you and for me. But the soldiers were clueless of who Jesus was, what he was doing for them. They gamble for his clothes, they mock him, they, they offer him sour wine. And they say, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. The rulers say basically the same thing. Hey, he saved others. Let him save himself if he's really the Christ, if he's really God. If that's really who he is, he claimed he was, well then prove it, Jesus. Save yourself. Even one of the men crucified next to him gets in on the mockery. Oh yeah, if you're really the savior, why don't you save yourself? And by the way, us too as well. All these different groups are mocking Jesus, saying, if you're really God, if you're really the Christ, save yourself. But they miss something so very important. Jesus is the Christ. He is God. He could have saved himself at any point, but he didn't to save you and me. These people that were mocking him and saying, oh, if you're really God, save yourself. He says, no, I won't save myself in order to save you from your sin. I am doing this for you. And the mockery and the irony of the fact that people are saying, if you're truly God, save yourself. And you say, no, I am truly God. And that's why I will not save myself. I will go through this torture. I will go through all of this for you. As these groups mocked Jesus and missed who he was and why he allowed himself to die, one person didn't miss it. One person got it. Let's see who that was, verse 40. But the other, as in the other person hanging on the cross next to him, answered, rebuking him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing that you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise you got two thieves on either side of jesus one mocks him oh yeah if you're really the christ if you're really god why don't you save yourself and us by the way as well and the other one chimes in and rebukes him he says don't you fear god seeing you're under the same condemnation but we deserve to be up here we've done something deserving of this execution he hasn't he is innocent you see this crucified man recognized that jesus was who he claimed to be. He didn't deserve this punishment. And then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And notice Jesus' response to him, Assuredly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. This thief on the cross believed in who Jesus was, that he was God, that he was innocent, and he believed that Jesus could save him. Hey, when you come into your kingdom, remember me. Remember me. And Jesus Tells him, today you will be with me in paradise or heaven. Here we have a man about to die. 
accept Jesus and is saved for all eternity. Jesus died because he loves us and wants to save us. And there are those who wait till the last moment in their life like we see with this man. And Jesus is still offering forgiveness. He's still saying, you know what? I want to forgive you. I want to save you. And even for those on their deathbed, he will save if they'll come to him and ask for his forgiveness. So Jesus didn't remove himself from the cross because that is ultimately what he came to this earth to do. Now that he's endured the mockery and the torture, it's time to finish the work. It's time to give up his life. Verse 44. Now it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness all over the earth until the ninth hour. Then the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. We're told from the sixth hour all the way to the ninth hour, there was darkness over the land. And that is something that is quite significant because that is from 12 noon till 3 p.m. 12 noon to 3 p.m. is usually not dark. The sun is shining and there was a supernatural darkness that God brought as Jesus was being tortured and, and crucified for us. But you know what? At the ninth hour, 3 p.m., something very important happens that Luke does not record for us, but Matthew does record. Matthew chapter 27, verse 46 says this, And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Of all the things that Jesus has gone through, and we've made a list starting in Gethsemane all the way to the crucifixion, I want you to understand something. I believe this by far was the worst. Because with everything leading up to this point, the father was with him. The Father was with him, and now there's a point in time when he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, at this moment in time, the Father poured the sin of the world, your sin and mine, upon Jesus. And at that moment, he had to forsake his own son. He had to forsake Jesus because he could not allow sin into his presence. And Jesus at that moment is crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus was sinless, and he was there on the cross, and God made Jesus who knew no sin to become sin for us. He poured our sin upon Jesus who took that sin upon himself, and at that very moment, the Father could no longer be with Jesus. He had to forsake and separate himself from his only son. Jesus chose to take on himself our sin. He chose to be forsaken. He chose to be separated from the Father so that we wouldn't have to be forsaken, so that we wouldn't have to be separated from the Father because of our sin. You see, the reality is our sin, the Bible's very clear, separates us from God. And the only way for us to have that relationship with God back is if we accept what Jesus has done for our sin. The fact that he paid for our sin enables that sin to be forgiven and enables that separation to no longer happen. We can now have a relationship with God. Jesus willingly was separated, willingly was forsaken so that you and I wouldn't have to be. When we believe in who Jesus is, when we believe in what he did for us on the cross, when we ask him to forgive us of our sin, when we ask him to come into our life, it is in that moment that we go from being separated from God to have a relationship with God. But being separated and forsaken by the Father 
really wasn't the worst part of Jesus' experience. The Father had to pour his wrath and his judgment upon Jesus. See, it's not just the sin that's the problem, it's the consequence. It's the judgment of God that's a really ultimate problem. The Bible says the, the ultimate judgment of God for our sin is hell. Jesus took upon ourselves the judgment that you and I deserve for our sin. Why? So that we could escape that judgment. He willingly was separated. He willingly was forsaken. And he willingly received the judgment that he didn't deserve. He didn't do anything wrong. He received that judgment so that you and I could escape it. So that you and I wouldn't have to spend eternity in hell. All of us are sinners. All of us deserve God's judgment. All of us deserve hell. There are many people today who don't believe that. Oh, I'm a good person. It's not what the Bible says. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us are sinners. All of us deserve God's judgment. And there's only one way to escape it. Accepting what Jesus has done on the cross for our sin. To believe he's God. To believe he died. To believe he rose from the dead to conquer sin and death. And to ask for his forgiveness. If you do not do that, the Bible is very clear. There's no access to God. There's no access to heaven. There's no relationship. There's no forgiveness of sin. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I'm the only path. I'm the only way. You try another way. You try through your good works. You try through religion. You try through this and that. It's not going to work. It's not going to bring forgiveness. It's not going to bring salvation. Only through me and what I've done. All of us are going to die. And the Bible says when we do, we're going to stand before Jesus, the righteous judge. And at that moment in time, you either are going to be judged for your sin and sent to hell, or you're going to be forgiven for what you've done because you've accepted Jesus Christ. But the Bible is very clear. It's in this life that we make that choice. And that choice for whether we accept Jesus or reject Jesus is going to determine when we stand before him, when we have died, whether or not we'll be allowed into heaven or whether or not we'll be cast into hell. I'm confident that when Jesus had our sin poured upon him and the Father forsook him and poured his wrath on him, that was the most difficult part of all of this. He's gone through emotional turmoil. He's gone through physical trials. But the spiritual reality of having the sin of the world placed on him and the Father judging that, I believe, was by far the worst part of all this. And I don't think we'll ever be able to comprehend how horrible that was for him. But I want you to remember... He willingly did that. He wasn't forced to. He chose to because he loves you. And he wants a relationship with you and he knows there is no other way. Remember in the garden, if there's any other way, let's do that. But not my will, but yours be done. There is no other way. Well, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We're not Jesus' last words, fortunately. The Gospel of John says the next thing that he said is, it is finished. Powerful words remembering this was the purpose of why he came. We started in the manger and we've come to the cross, but the cross was always the reason. Why he came as a baby in Bethlehem and lived a sinless life was ultimately leading to this point when he would give his life for the sins of the world. This was the reason he came. This was the ultimate purpose. And now he can finally say, it's finished. My purpose, my reason for coming to this world is finally accomplished. The Greek word translated, it is finished, was a shout of triumph for someone who victoriously finished a huge task. 
Well, there was no greater task than what Jesus did on the cross. And at the end, he can shout out, it is finished. A shout of triumph and victory for the finished task he came to this earth to complete. After saying it is finished, Jesus then does speak his last words. He says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And after he says that, he breathes his last breath and he dies. By saying, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, Jesus shows that he gave up his life when he chose to and how he chose to. No one took it from him. It was in his plan and his design. He willingly allowed this, and now it was time to finish the work that he came for, and he did. Jesus is not a victim that we should pity, but a conqueror we should admire and thank. He wasn't forced to die on the cross. He wasn't forced to take our sin. He wasn't forced to receive the judgment that we deserve. He willingly chose to do those things because he loves you and he loves me so much. Now when Jesus died, something very important and symbolic happened. We're told the veil of the temple was torn in two. In the temple, there was a huge veil over 100 feet tall, and it separated everyone from the most important place of all at that point in time, which was the Holy of Holies, the dwelling place of God. Only one man, the high priest, one time of year, was actually able to pass that veil, that barrier, and he was able to go in to atone for the sins of the earth. And notice now that veil is torn open. And what ultimately God is declaring is up to this point, there's always been this barrier between you and me, and that barrier has been removed because Jesus Christ has now paid the price for your sin. And what ultimately was, and you look at the whole temple, you had the court of the Gentiles, the court of the women, the court of the men, everything was ultimately saying, stay out, stay out, stay out. And now the temple veil is ripped in two, and Jesus is saying, come in. I've died for your sin. You can now have a relationship with me. Things have changed. The old covenant is gone and the new covenant is here and now you are free to come to me boldly to my throne where you'll find grace and mercy. So Jesus is now dead and Luke shares with us some of the reactions of the people who were watching the crucifixion. Verse 47. So when the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God, saying, Certainly this was a righteous man. And the whole crowd who came together to that site, seeing what had been done, beat their breasts and returned. But all his acquaintances and the women who followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Luke here shares with us three different responses from three different groups of people. One, there was a a centurion. And he sees this and he comes to a recognition of, you know, man, certainly this was a righteous man man second response was from the crowd and they they beat their breasts and they ultimately just returned home they didn't really know what to make of it we've seen all this and now he's gone he's done all these things all these miracles all the message and and now it's over at least so they thought the third response was from jesus's acquaintances the women who followed him from galilee and they just stood at a distance watching these things blown away by what was taking place we're going to see next week fortunately the story doesn't end here you know what, there's a fourth response that we see in verses 50 to 56. A very interesting individual. Now behold, there was a man named Joseph, a council member, a good and just man. He had not consented to their decision indeed. He was from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who himself was also waiting for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down, wrapped it in linen, and laid it in a tomb that was hewn out of the rock, where there no one had ever lain before. 
That day was the preparation and the Sabbath drew near and the women who had come with him from Galilee followed after and they observed the tomb and his own body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and fragrant oils and they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandments. Luke tells us of another response by a man named Joseph. Joseph came to Pilate and he asked for Jesus' body so that he could place Jesus' body in his own tomb. I want to bury this man properly was ultimately the heart of of Joseph. We're told some interesting things about him. He was from Arimathea, which is a Jewish city. But also notice he was a council member. Remember that I talked to you about the Sanhedrin when we looked at Jesus' trial, the 70-member council who would ultimately try people? He was one of those 70. But notice he wasn't one who said, crucify him, kill him. We're told that he was a good and just man, and he did not consent to the council's decision. He might have been the only one. But he was one who said, you know what? No, I believe in who Jesus is, and he does not deserve to be crucified. Now, the type of tomb that Joseph of Arimathea gave Jesus to have would have been quite expensive. And he takes Jesus' body, the women follow him, and he goes to the tomb. Here's a picture I took while in Israel. You can see Jenny, they're all excited to go into the tomb. You'll notice it's empty. And we'll talk more about that next week when we talk about the resurrection. Now, as I mentioned at the start of this message, the main thing I want you to leave this morning with is a confidence that God loves you, that he has a deep, deep love for you. He didn't just tell you he loves you. He showed you. He showed you in the most powerful way by giving his life for you, by sacrificing himself, by taking your sin upon himself, the judgment that you deserve. So when you go through difficulties, when you go through struggles, when you go through Lost, and you have these thoughts of, God, do you really love me? Look to the cross. Remember what he's done for you. And let that be something that makes you confident that, yes, he does. Even though difficulties are in my life, even though struggles are happening, even though these things are, are transpiring that I don't like, I can be confident in God's love because of what he's already done for me on the cross. God's love is so great that there's nothing that can separate you from it. I love this passage of scripture, Romans 8, 38 and 39. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We have the worship team come up. What a wonderful truth. Nothing can separate us from God's love. We're going to close this morning as we do the first Sunday of every month, remembering the sacrifice of Jesus. But it's more fitting this morning. We take communion. We take those elements that are symbolic of Jesus' body and his blood that were sacrificed for us. But obviously this morning as we spent this time looking at that sacrifice, how fitting it is for us to finish this morning remembering that work. The worship team is going to lead us in a song, and as that happens, we're going to pass around the communion elements. I ask that you would just hold on to them so that we can take communion together. This is an open communion, meaning that if you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you've asked forgiveness of your sins, then we would invite you to take that with us. If you've never done that, then we would just ask that you would just allow the elements to pass by. And so as we gather these together, we'll sing, and then I'll come back up and and we'll, we'll take the communion elements together. So let's go ahead and pass that out.